Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're thrilled this week to have a past guest back on the show 
one of our favorites, Mr. Tim Knight of Georgia. Tim, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there like a hair in a biscuit. Yeah, that's my favorite line, man. I, after you said that the first time we talked to you, I, I stole yeah. that. I say it all the time now. <laughs> I say it every chance still, I get. Still still hanging in there. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Ginger Bowhunter, how you doing? Uh, doing well, doing well. Deer haven't been treating me super nice recently. Uh, you've seen a, a pretty big deer recently. Yeah, something to talk about on the outro. Yeah, something to talk about on the outro. But, uh, yeah, no, Tim, super biggin'. excited. Yeah, biggin'. Super excited to have you on here, Tim, to really kind of uh, go through the weeds on everything. Uh, of course, if people listen to your first episode we had you on, which uh, I should have looked at that episode number on what that is. Andrew's got his cell phone. He he probably could find it, you know. I'll look it up. Hey, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Yeah, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and you listen to Tim's first episode we did with him. But uh, Tim, while Andrew's looking up this episode number from the first time we had you on, uh, the first time we had you on, we really kind of went down the rabbit hole. I think a lot of people really got a lot out of it especially when it came to your calling in the the rattling style which i want to hash out a little bit later in this episode just for the new listeners because uh, there's been quite a few new listeners that's came on since the last time you were on here but uh for one so you're saying so you're saying you got like 14 instead of 12 now oh that's there great. you absolutely absolutely yeah. yep <laughs> growing at a slowly steady pace yeah, yeah right, two right. more and they're all from georgia <laughs> yeah. all right all both of them yeah. <laughs> oh Oh man, um, <laughs> gosh! <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but but really back at it. There's a couple different topics we're going to discuss in this episode, but one I really want to touch on uh, has to go kind of hand in hand with you and your 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 big non typical that you killed earlier this year, um, which is the the concept of not relying solely on trail cameras. Uh, to dictate how you go about hunting or when you hunt or how you hunt areas. I think, you know, this this day and age, so many guys, you know, are, are so, you know, excited with trail cameras, which, I mean, they're fun. It's, it's fun to look at pictures of deer. But I, I feel like it can really run somebody the wrong way of, like, maybe not hunting an area. Maybe they have cell cameras out there, and they're like, oh, man, the camera's dead. Nothing's happening. Well, you know, that's not always telling you the case of what's really happening in the area. And you're one of those guys that, you know, doesn't rely – you know, solely on trail cameras to really figure out what you do and how you go about hunting. So, uh, can, can we talk a little bit about that? Let's, let's kind of go through, well, like, you let's know, make you, this point here. If, if you read a lot of my Facebook posts, this is kind of one of my things. Okay. I made this post here a while back. There are more buck lives saved every year by trail cameras than are killed because the average guy will look at his camera and say, I'm not going hunting today or this week. I don't have anything good on camera. What an absolute mistake that is. Because if you think when you put a camera up, just think about where the deer has got to walk to have his picture taken. He can walk in a hundred different directions in that area and not walk in front of your camera. Or he may only come through there one time chasing a hot doe that season and guess where you're at. You're sitting at home telling everybody you don't have anything good on camera. Cameras are like we talked about earlier. The, the trail camera tell you tells you where the deer was. It does not tell you where he is. And that's an that's excellent point and a really good kind of quote I think for this this trail or this uh, topic on the conversation is you know tell you those trail cameras tell you where they were not where he necessarily is, especially yeah. if he's moving now. You know, th- I'll tell you this, Tim. We had a guy on the podcast, Mr. Paul Butera from New Jersey, uh, a few weeks back, and um, he's just an absolute big buck killer hunting public land, hunting a bunch of different states. But he doesn't rely 
on trail cameras really in season. He does a lot of preseason kind of running of trail cameras, but he actually killed a buck that he uh, he tracked. Uh, this was uh, uh, last year, maybe two years ago. And he actually tracked this buck, dry ground tracked him. That's one of his skill sets. Um, and followed this buck for, I think it was like right around a mile or so. And it was up in kind of hill country. And that buck walked within, I think he said like 50, 25 yards or so of eight different cameras, but he always walked around the backside of the camera. He never, the path that he took, he never went in front of any of those trail cameras that were on that piece of public land uh, throughout that whole track. And that's what he, Paul said was kind of the eye-opening aspect of like, you know, you might have a camera out here on, on a, in a travel corridor or wherever on a scrape, but that big buck, he might not be coming directly down right where your camera set up. Your camera might be set up on the best sign, the best trail there. He might be on yeah. a faint trail 10, 15 yards back behind you, uphill or downhill from you. And you're just, and just coming in there and sent. He might be just coming in there scent checking from the downwind side. Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing he took away. It, it, it told, he said it kind of changed the way he looked at now running trail cameras of, again, not relying so much on them, especially in season, because especially these big old bucks, they don't get big and old by just, you know, spending a whole bunch of time in front of guys' trail cameras, especially as often the guys like to check them or now with these cell cameras. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Well, I can give you a case in point. It, this one particular buck that I'm hunting, uh, this in a, in a different county, um, uh, the property that I have permission to hunt, and I know all the guys that's in this other property, they got a 700-acre bow hunting only lease, and they all getting pictures of this same buck, and nobody's been able to kill him. He's that, I mean, he's just, he, you know, you, you'll get some pictures of him, and then you might go a week without getting a picture of him, but that doesn't mean he's not coming through the area. You're just not getting a picture of him. And, you know, that's the mistake those guys make a lot of times. They're like, well, we ain't got so-and-so on camera in a week. Uh, they ain't no need to hunt. And I'm like, man, you got to hunt. I mean, because he may only come through there one time, and if he walks it like you're talking about, he might walk by 15 yards of you, but he's not in the he's not in the range of the camera to take his picture. I just think that's a big mistake hunters make. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, I kind of hmm. agree too, kind of on the aspect of you know, I think trail cameras save a lot of deer's lives because you know, you know, there's gonna be of course bucks you're gonna get on trail camera, but I, I feel like, and this is something I wish we could track with maybe like one of these GPS collar studies or something like that of how these mature bucks react to trail cameras. Because I don't think, especially in these areas down here in the deep south where they're fairly, you know, there's pretty high pressure no matter where you're at. Um, they they get the lowdown of a trail camera and I feel like it kind of changes what happens with them. I mean, it seems so often you might get a good, cam good buck on camera and you can tell he notices the camera and then that's the last time you have him on a trail camera. That's like that buck that I had on camera last week, the, like the big, big bodied one. He noticed that camera, he, he was walking right by it, it was at night. He noticed the infrared, I guess, uh, and he got to a certain point and he stopped. And I mean, it like spooked him. I mean, he ran off and stared at the camera from a distance. I'm like, well, I'm probably never going to get him on that camera again. Just cause now well, he, let me he ask you this question. How often, how often do you get coyotes on trail camera? Pretty often, actually. In this spot, I've been running cameras here lately. I get them a couple times a week, two mm -hmm. of them. You know, as I was in a, this has been a few years ago, but I was in a, I was a, a guest of, <clears throat> of a piece of property that was trying to, to thin some does and uh, it was bucks of course i was tagged out on bucks but he said man you shoot as many does as you want to shoot he said i got too many and i said okay well he happened to have a camera on this food plot and there was a coyote came out right at dusk dark and when that red light blinked on that camera i thought that coyote was going to turn himself in it wigged him out buddy I'm talking about he did that fall down running away, if you know what I'm talking about. 
Oh yeah. And I, I think he's still running. I mean, it wigged him out. <laughs> he, he, he did not like that red dot blinking on that camera. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's just interesting to think about, uh, think about the kind of impact that might have. I mean, that's happened to me many times over the years, actually. And especially it seems like it's always with those bigger, uh, older bucks. And I've even had it, uh, during daytime, uh, where the, where the video comes through in the daylight where there's not even infrared and they still notice the camera as I guess it makes a noise or something, but that camera clicks on and you have them walk and, and it, two seconds after the video starts, they stop and like, uh, swing around, stare at the camera for a minute, run off. Yeah. And, and I'll, Tim, I'll say this as well. I think a lot of people don't realize, especially on these calm days or even like at night, these cameras, a lot of times they make a noise, whether it's a photo or a video, when they click on, you, you can hear it. And actually, I was out scouting, hunting slash scouting uh, a couple of days ago and ran into somebody's trail camera. And it was a little muddy trail camera. And actually, I took my, I walked past it. Clearly, I know I, I was on camera. I walked past it and just like, hey, you know, I don't know if they're listening to podcasts or not. They may, they actually, it, it, there's a chance we, we think it might be one of the listeners that we know. Uh, so I took my orange hat off, which is a Southern Outdoorsman hat, and I actually held it down from the camera to like take a picture of the, the hat, <laughs> a little branding. And uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, I, you could hear it and it was real calm. And, and the second I put that camera down there, you heard the shutter go off and the click. And you can just imagine if a buck's all wiry and he's, you know, he's, he's all kind of worked up with, for whatever reason in the area. And he hears that little noise, sees that light, whatever. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that those cameras can do, I think, to alert deer and just make it, that's, it's just not natural. Uh, Especially out in the quiet of the woods. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like I say, you you, you know, it, it's kind of like the old saying, putting all your marbles in one basket. Um, you know, let's kind of put it this way. Cameramanship will never take the place of woodmanship no more than marksmanship will take the place of good woodsmanship um you know it's, it's just like in the archery you know I, I you know i got i know people that if you had them at your house and you were shooting targets and you were shooting at quarter or dime size dots at 50 yards they'd take my money all day long but you put something out there in front of them guys with hair on it and it wigs them out they just uh it, <laughs> they can't handle the pressure of the hunting situation um yeah. But but the thing is, I could shoot with anybody at 20 yards, and I know just from past experiences, I've got no trouble getting within 20 yards of a wild animal and them not knowing I'm there. And, I, you know, I can shoot with anybody at 20 yards. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I like where this discussion is going because, I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I love trail cameras, but they, they definitely are a crutch. I mean, even for me this week, I, I've got cameras in some of my rut spots, and I know the deer are there, but they're not showing up on the cameras. I'm like, man... And it's just, it's discouraging, but I got to make myself go in there and hunt it anyways. But uh, without that technology aspect, you got to fall back on that sign. And we love to talk about woodsmanship. We, we try to talk about it in every episode we get an opportunity to. And uh, that sign reading and that experience, and that woodsmanship is what uh, is going to have to supplement that technology for people to be really successful. And Tim, you told us a story before we got on about the, the I think it was the buck from this year with the persimmon tree. And I just think that that is such a such an excellent example of what I'm trying to talk about right here. Uh, could you could you go over that story of that persimmon tree and that buck you shot? Yeah, I actually I killed that deer the opening day of our gun season here in the afternoon, and that's the first buck I've ever killed with my bow on the opening day of gun season ever my whole hunting career. And I've been I've been bow hunting full time since 1985. 
I mean, that was 85 was the last year I killed a deer with a gun. But I killed that deer because I had scouted way earlier in the season. I killed that deer a week before bow season come in, which was probably six weeks. Um, and I was out with binoculars. I was checking uh, white oak trees. I was checking persimmon trees, crabapple trees, swamp chestnut oaks, pin oaks, water oaks. I was checking all the trees to see which ones had acorns, which ones didn't, which ones, which soft mass trees had persimmons, which one. And this particular tree was in the middle of a cypress swamp. It's a big tree. It's big around as a telephone pole, and it's probably got a 60-foot canopy. And it was absolutely loaded with persimmons, but they were green as a gourd. And I knew right then, I said, well, this tree's not going to be dropping for another month. And uh, the day I killed that deer was the day I decided, well, it's time to go try the persimmon tree. So I put my climber on my back and went in that particular area, checked my wind, and I climbed on the downwind side of that tree. And uh, since it was a pretty open swamp, I climbed a little bit higher than I normally do, and I got on the back side of the tree. So my tree is between me and the persimmon tree, you know. I've actually pretty much got to stand up, turn around to shoot. But I didn't want to be on the same side of the tree as the persimmon because I would be completely exposed. I'd be sticking out like a sore thumb. You know, and I can pretty much play peekaboo, you know, around my tree. And uh, sure enough, that buck come in there about 6.40 that afternoon. Yeah, he got shot. <laughs> he made it about 50 yards and piled up. But here was one of the cool things that I didn't mention earlier about that deer. When I shot that deer, I always call my boys first, and I tell them I shot a, a pretty good buck. And I, I called my oldest son first, and his name's Josh. And I said, Josh, I just shot a nice buck. I said, he's non-typical. I said, he's got a whole bunch of junk on his left side. And he said, really? I said, yeah. He said, I'm fixing to send you a picture of a deer, and you tell me if this is the deer you shot. And I'm, I'm sitting here scratching my head. How in the world could he even know what? I mean, he's not even in his property with me. So he sends me the picture of this deer. And I'm going, oh, my God, that's him. That's him. That's the deer I just shot. So I call him back, and I said, dang, Josh, that's the buck. He went to laughing. He said, one of our mutual friends, his name is Cole Garrett. He had a picture of that buck. I killed this deer on a Saturday afternoon. He had a picture of that buck the Friday morning before at 10.30 a.m., over a mile the way the crow flies from where I killed this buck. That buck had traveled over a mile from Friday at lunch till Saturday in the evening, but he knew exactly where that persimmon tree was because he came straight to it and went to feed. Wasn't like he just wandered up on it, you know, but that, that kind of gives you an idea how far a buck can travel in 24 hours or a little bit more. It was over a mile. Actually, it was about a I think we looked it up on Google Earth. It was like a, 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 mile, a, a mile and an eighth from where I killed him, you know, from where the picture was taken to where I killed him, with it probably a, in a 30-hour window. Man, it, it's it's like that, like uh, like the saying goes. Uh, you killed that deer when you were scouting. You just picked him up the day that, on opening day rifle season. Um, I, I like that so much because, uh, like, it highlights the scouting thing, but it also kind of shows how it is important to know, know your trees, know your brows and everything, because... Uh, I mean, a lot of hunters are interested in learning uh, the different kind of soft mass trees, different types of oaks and everything. But I mean, not everybody. Some people out there are kind of like, well, I don't really need to know that. I just need to know about pinch points and, and this and that. But that what I'm getting at is that level of woodsmanship where you've spent enough time out in the woods learning about these things. When you see that persimmon tree, you can identify the persimmon tree. Uh, even in a swamp where it's 60 foot high and you got to look way up in the canopies, you were able to identify it. You're able to 
look at the fruit and know about when that fruit's going to be coming in. Uh, and so you were able to put all that together and, and go in there and have an awesome hunt, which again, I just, I can't stress enough how I think that that could be a huge difference maker for some guys. If you take the time to learn that kind of stuff and, and put your effort in and, and grow those woodsmanship skills on some of those finer details. Yeah. And you know, there's a point to be made here. I didn't put any pressure on that spot. I didn't go in there to hunt until I felt like it was the time to kill the deer, you know, and I didn't have to go in there, you know, you know, the average guy would have gone in there and, and he just scouted late and said, oh boy, this persimmon tree is dropping. And then if he didn't have a climber on his back right then to go up a tree, he was going to go back and get a ladder or a lock on or whatever and come back up there. And then, you know, he was going to put it up and he's going to sweat up and all that. You know, that you can't, that magic, that first time in, you know, for the majority of the time is, 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 is the magical time, you know, that's your best chance to kill him most of the time is that first time you go into a spot. And that's something you know, our one of our past guests, Mr. Glenn Solomon, who is from Georgia, uh, talked a lot about, which is, you know, of course, first time in and this is always the best time uh, when targeting these bucks. But also it's just it's having that woodsmanship to understand how you need to set up and how to approach that, but also have the confidence of hunting with the stand on your back and, and not not being somebody that, you know, just runs to the woods, they're scouting, and then they're going to come back to it a couple of days later. I'm guilty of that. Did that a couple of days ago. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that if you find the sign it's hot, you need to hang on it you need to hunt it. Because, um, you know, you right don't know. Then. Right then. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you're talking feed sign, because you don't know what could change in two or three days that they're not going to come back and feed there. Um, you know, something could happen, you know, whatever. But also, a couple of things you mentioned just uh, right off the bat with, with that story, which I thought was pretty slick, and I really just want to highlight. One thing you mentioned is that area was quite open. Uh, you know, there, it didn't seem like there was a lot of overhanging, you know, cover when it came to oh, know, it was camping. wide open cypress swamp. It was so, open. so with that, you know, one thing that you mentioned was, hey, you, you you still were hunting with your climber, but you got on the back side of the tree to kind of put that tree in between you and that feed tree which is something I want to kind of talk, just discuss real briefly on for the guys that are still hunting with climbers is you don't always have to be on that front side of the tree. My uncle uh, taught me that growing up, uh, both with climbers, but also even with lock-ons in areas where like you just can't get, unless you're going to climb 40 feet up a tree, which is a terrible shot angle with a bow, you know, there's no way for you to get, you know, really out of the deer's line of sight. So a lot of times you got to get on the backside of the tree and we used to do that in pines all the time in like open pines on the edge of like some kind of thick cover and you would get up there and we would hang lock-ons on the backside of trees and hunt it like that where you're like hey if you're hunting here you're going to be standing like you can sit down a little bit but you know you've got to be standing and watching and listening um and, and that's where i think especially some of these climbers that have like a sit bar or something you can kind of like rest on if you want to where you face the tree can really play a huge factor for you on, you know, staying focused, but putting yourself on the backside of the tree so you can stay, you know, content and also stay, you know, somewhat hidden, more hidden from the, the approach of the deer. Um, now, of course, some listeners can be like, well, why don't you use a climbing saddle? Well, you can. You can use a or tree saddle. I mean, you can use a tree saddle and it does the same thing. You're on the backside of the tree. But for the guys using climbers, that's a really important thing I just wanted to touch on is, Get on the backside of the tree. If it's open woods and you're hunting a food source or some kind of desiccated area, the deer is gonna be sitting around for a little while. Get on backside. Oh, yeah. Get on the backside of the tree so they're not feeding, looking up at you like, "Oh crap, what is that thing up in the tree?" Yeah, because uh, that big old matriarch doe comes in there. She's gonna pick you off. No doubt about it. That's that's the smartest animal that walks in the woods. It's one in, especially she's got yearlings with her. Man, she's smart. Yeah. 
Hey Tim, by the way, what uh what climber do you use again? Lone Wolf. Do you use a hand climber or sit and climb? Sit and climb. Right, I've, I've got I've still got one of the original Lone Wolf sit and climbs. And I've I've, you know, I've actually written several articles about the way this climber, the way I set mine up, because over the years I've altered it, you know, just uh, from the sake of necessity. Um, just to give you some simple little things. Um, you know, they come, they come with a metal climbing bar, kind of shaped like a, a U, you know, that you set your butt in. Well, that's not very comfortable. And those climbers don't come with a footrest. So what I did was mine is I moved that climbing bar down to my platform on the end. So now it's, it's a fold-up it's a fold up foot prop now, that part is. And I replaced the, the bar with a piece of heavy-duty seatbelt material that my butt sits in like a sling to climb with. Um, I did away with the, the original seat that was in it and put a, uh, it's the best seat in the world. It's called a silent seat. It looks like a fishnet. Um, the ones for my stand are about 25 bucks with shipping. Probably one of the most comfortable seats that you can put on a climber. And they make them for all different types of climbers, whether it's a summit or a lone wolf or, you know, you know the old man stands used to come stock with those net type seats and that was a very comfortable seat but another good advantage to that seat is when you stand up it collapses behind you it just actually just it folds up against the you know close to the tree so that's not in your way yeah um, uh, well i gotta i gotta i gotta say that right now so actually that's so that company that's called uh that's hasmore so they were actually advertised on the Has, podcast yeah hazemore yeah hazemore hazemore well hey, we could pronounce it hazemore uh, talking to old uh old james over there uh but with hazemore seats those silent seats that's a yeah that's a huge aspect i always say this like if you're a serious bow hunter like you've got it and, and you're using a climber you've got to have that seat because it makes climbing the trees so much easier uh, that's one of the biggest things i've noticed with using mine because i've got a lone wolf sit and climb too which i've used summit i've used old man i've used gorilla and by far my favorite climber uh, for compactness, usability, the whole nine yards has got to be that sit and climb from a lone wolf, which isn't an average, isn't an advertiser or anything like that, but it's so compact. It's lightweight. Uh, it does everything you need to do. And especially for a bow hunter, it gives you like the perfect, and especially if you partner it with that has more silency, you, you sit up so much higher in that, in that stand where you can shoot, you, you can sit and shoot with your bow very easily and have plenty of clearance uh, above the rail because of where you sit with it. So it, it's fantastic. Plus, it, you know, you know, having a, a cast aluminum platform, it's just a lot more quieter too. Um, oh, it's not like a hollow tube, you know, it don't, mm -hmm. it don't echo, you know, and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's stealthy. That's, that's the, I guess the, the prime word for that stand It's stealthy. I mean, you can slip into a spot, and if it's a sweet gum or a cypress or some type of slick bark tree, I'll get up that tree and you'll never know. I, I mean, you'll never hear me climb it, you know, never hear me climb it. I've just been doing it so long. And um, anyway, just like on my stand, you know, on, on the seat part, I've got a pouch on one side. that has got a Gerber folding saw and a pair of ratchet pruners. And that's just for if you climb a tree you've never climbed before, you can trim it and clean it on your way up. And uh then I've got a, I'm left-handed, so I, I've got an extra quiver bracket on the left-hand side of my seat climber. So I, when I take my quiver off my boat, I'll just, I'll put it in that extra quiver holder on that rail on, you know, and then I've got a, you'd have to see how it's set up, but I, the way that foot prop folds forward and ahead of the platform, I've got my bow holder attached to that foot prop. 
so my bow is directly in front of me uh, and it's right there ready to use uh, you know if you know what I'm saying it's not off to the left it's not off to the right it's dead center to stand and it's right there where I can easily grab it and take it out of the holder Oh, absolutely! No, that sounds that sounds awesome. It sounds like if you get get an opportunity to send us some photos, I'd love to post that to show some of the, the listeners kind of how you have your uh, your stand set up. Because you know, this day and age, it, it seems like uh, you know so many people are, are going towards like you know they want to try to do the the uh, you know lightweight climbers. They want to do the tree sales and everything else like that. And there, there's all kind of fantastic options, especially when it comes to the saddles and, and, and lock-ons and everything. But there's sometimes, especially in some regions of the country, that a climber is just a fantastic option no matter where you're at. And I actually, I, I should have taken a photo of this. An area I was hunting um, this past weekend. Um, actually, no, it was a couple just a couple days ago. Uh, it was one of those areas, this big SMZ that ran in, into a cutover Every 95% of the trees in there, you could have taken a climber in there very, very easily and climbed to any height you needed, whether you needed to be 15 feet up or needed to be 35 feet up, uh, and, and gotten a little bit of cover on any of those trees. Again, there's just plenty of options. Um, but, you know, some areas you go to, it's a little more limiting. But if you live in an area that has, you know, plenty of, you know, pines, especially if they're well-managed pines, and they're fairly clean. I mean, it takes very little effort to actually climb one of those trees uh, with a climber. Um but I've got to ask, what else have you done? Just while we're on the gear topic, we're going to go down the gear topic and get back to the woodsman shipping and everything else in just a second. But uh, what have you done to quiet your stand any more? I mean, have you like rock, you know, wrapped like hockey tape around any of the metal components of it or crossbars? I mean, that, what else have no, you done it, to it? it? It doesn't need it. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, there's nothing really on that stand to make noise unless, you know, you know, unless you're Sasquatch, you know, unless you've got giant hands and feet and you're clumsy as crap. You know, it's 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 a very stealthy stand right out of the box. It really is. You know, with that climbing belt, you know, it's not. There's no there's no metal to metal noise like you would with a steel cable going into an aluminum tube. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's very quiet right right by itself. The, the, you gonna make more where you gonna make the most noise is trying to climb a pine tree. You know, and you can't climb a pine tree with anything. And not be noisy. It's gonna make noise, man. That that yeah. is that is absolutely the case. Um, that that's that's probably the most frustrating thing. I'll say this, you know, because we we use uh saddles a whole bunch, tree saddles a whole bunch. We use you know lock on stands a good bit in in climbers, and I, I'll say that's the one thing that frustrates me about hunting with a climber is when you have to. It doesn't bother me in mornings, but on an afternoon hunt, if you're hunting close to bedding and you've got to climb a pine tree. To me, there's nothing more frustrating than trying to be super stealthy climbing that pine tree. I mean, you can kind of make it sound like a uh, maybe some squirrels running up and down the tree because they're loud as crap, anyways. But uh, that that's like one of the most frustrating things is, is that you know that crunching of the bark as you climb up in a climb. Well, so wait, but devil's advocate here. What about uh, if you're using climbing sticks and you, you know, set that stick and everything, and it no, sets down? Well, you don't set yours correctly, bro. When I set my ah. sticks, they don't move. I'm just telling you right now, they don't move. I'm, I'm, I'll say that right now. When I'm using sticks, I feel so stealthy, quiet in those situations with climbing. I'll sticks. say the lone wolf sticks set easier than the shikaras. The shikaras set really far down because they're so sharp. Mm -hmm. So, but anyways, well, it, you know, one advantage, another advantage to the climber is if you. You can go just as high or just as low or just around what side of the tree that you want to. That That's hard to do with climbing sticks. You pretty much, when you set them climbing sticks, you're set to one height and to one side of that tree. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, 
I, also, that, that is a, that is a big. That's one thing I like about like I've, I've hunted with a climber a couple times this season so far. And to be honest, when hunting in a climber, especially if you don't have to climb a pine tree, you climb a pine tree, you just try to make this little noises going up. And it, well, I mean, noise is not like metal noise; it's just bark on the pine tree is always super loud on lob lollies or or uh, long leaves. But well, a lot of people don't don't under, don't realize this, but used properly, a two piece climber and a safety belt is about the safest setup for going up and down a tree there is because you're attached to the tree with the platform you're attached to the tree with the seat the sit down stand up part and then you're attached to the tree with your safety belt in other words when i put my climber on the tree and i step up into the climber to get ready to climb first thing i do is hook my safety belt around the tree and then i I, as i go up i take the safety belt up with me and as i come down i take the so if I fall, it's because either lightning struck the tree and the tree fell or the wind blew it over with me in it. Most people fall in, you know, in ladders or even like lock-ons especially, making that transition between getting in the platform and getting on the stick or getting off the stick into the platform. That's the most dangerous time for a hunter to fall or when they will fall because most people don't put lifelines up, you know, to where they can hook up and they're hooked to a line from the time they go up, you know, very seldom does a hunter just fall out of his stand. You know, if he gets up in there, then he puts his safety belt on once he gets in the stand. But most most accidents happen in that transition period, getting off the stand into onto the ladder, or, or vice versa, off the ladder into the stand. Yeah, so, and uh, one thing, and also Tim, I wanted to just highlight uh, tree stand safety just real quick with climbers. If you're not using your safety harness in a cell, in a tether or uh, you know your safety belt, whatever, as you're going up, you're just being irresponsible yeah. and lazy. You're just being lazy. No, you're, you're, no, you're an idiot. No, the, the, so I'll, let's, I'll let's let put you, it out there. You're you're an idiot if you don't use a safety belt because the day's gonna come the law averages is gonna catch you. I mean, I got a. In fact, I I won't mention his name, but I you know I got a, a guy I know. I've known him for years. He went hunting with an outfitter and he trusted the outfitter's setup. He was on some sticks and was gonna get into the to the lock on platform. And when he got to the top stick, the buckle failed on that that ratchet and it pitched him out. I mean, he was holding on to the ladder, but the ladder bent over backwards with him still holding on to one of the steps and it pitched him out and he fell like 18 feet and it was a it's a miracle it didn't paralyze him it it busted him up pretty good he had a broken arm and i think a separated shoulder and some bruised ribs um but you know that it's just uh, it, it made no sense and i you know when i was corresponding and you know, i saw different texts between him and they said well you know the you know the outfitter didn't have lifelines on his stands and there's a nope and i'm like man you can't you even if I, it, me personally, if I hunted out of a lock-on ever again or out of out of a ladder, I would never trust straps. I would have chains because back in the day, that's what we used. When, when lock-ons first come out, they didn't have web straps with them. They had safety. They had chains, you know, logging, not logging chains, but you know what I'm talking about. You had metal chains that, you know, squirrels couldn't chew them into and they couldn't rot. It might grow into the tree, <laughs> but it ain't going to rot and, and fail, you know. Yeah, that's a, that's a big point. But again, kind of just getting back to like, especially with climbers, I just I know so many people that they'll wear a safety harness, but they're not actually using like a tether or anything to keep them att- attached to the tree as they climb. They're not adjusting it up as they go, uh, which again is just irresponsible. This is it's this laziness. Again, guys, like oh well, I'm fine. I feel safe enough in the climber, and it's like. 
there's so many situations. I hear so many stories every year and personally known so many guys that fall and especially out of climbers because something happened, you know, I've seen where, you know, one of the support beams or posts on like a, a stand, I won't name it a name, but another brand stand, I mean, literally separate and the guy's whole top section fell out as he was putting weight on it and he just fell completely out of the stand. And it's like, you never know when that can happen. You don't always just trust that equipment. You know, make sure you're using the safety harness. Make sure you're always tethered to the tree as you go up and down. And it's not hard at all. Get you a rope tether. What I do, I use the same tether I use for my saddle. It's an eight-feet piece of uh, eight-millimeter uh, static rope and uh, with a Prusik knot on there with my carabiner. And I attach it to my safety harness. And I attach it above my head and slide it up as I climb up the tree and climb down the tree. That's that's what I do. I throw it around that tree. It's got that slip knot on it with a carabiner, you know, and it's, and it takes, it might take you a minute longer to go up or come down. It's what it, it actually takes less time to come down because, you know, it's, uh, you know, cause it, most time it's going to come down with you. You know, if you got it slack enough, but going up, you are going to have to reach up and slide it up, you know, but most of the time when you slide it up, you just, the way mine's set up, you know the weight the way the weight of it with that slip knot in the carabiner it 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 basically binds itself on the tree it doesn't fall you know because of the angle if that makes sense to you yeah absolutely well i don't have to snug it up to the tree every single time you know what i'm saying yeah and like the 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 weight of just the carabiner being on there and attached to your harness uh you know tethering your harness you know has enough weight where yeah it's not falling down the tree um but i, I just wanted to hit on that not to bore listeners or anything but it's just really important there, there's it you you've got to do it guys i mean if you're going to be hunting out in an elevated position if you're not using a safety harness, you're not using a linesman belt when you're climbing. If you're using, you know, sticks and a lock on or sticks and a, a saddle, you're just being irresponsible. And if you're not using your safety well, harness, I don't climb. Exactly. Yeah. I'm very opinionated on that subject. In fact, usually when I do seminars and I get to talk to groups of people and we get one of the first things I say is there's two types of hunters. Those that use safety harnesses and stupid ones. That's, that's, that's it. My, my, you know, I'm opinionated on that, but I think I'm right in my opinion, you know. I've been to too many events to where a man had to shoot a gun by blowing through a straw because he didn't take five minutes to put on a safety harness. He fell out of a tree and broke his neck. Now he's paralyzed from the waist down, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to get back onto the woodsmanship aspect um, and kind of where we were at earlier. Um, you know, talking about kind of like your buck from the early season. Again, you were just finding that hot sign. Well, uh, really, you just found the hot, you found a, an awesome feed tree preseason and then came in there when the timing was right and, you know, just again was able to make it happen with that buck that came in, uh, which is an awesome non typical. We'll, we'll post that in the social media posts uh, so people can get, go and check that out on Facebook and Instagram. But I want to talk a little bit more about kind of just the woodsmanship and again, not relying solely on trail cameras to find where you need to hunt and how to hunt um so i don't i don't want to throw any of your, your like lease guy like because i know you're in you know, a couple different clubs and leases i don't want to throw any of those guys under the bus but is there anything specifically that some of those guys do or like some, maybe things you've seen in the past when it comes to trail cameras that really just dictated a guy's perspective of how he hunted and he just missed opportunities compared to like what you've been doing of really trying to focus more on the woodsmanship, focus more on boots on the ground and truly kind of scouting your way through a property to find exactly where you need to hang and hunt when you get the opportunity. Well, it's really this simple. The average guy, it's just like we talked about before. It's uh, the definition of insanity. You do the same thing over and over again, and you expect different results. They're going to put up a, a lock on or a ladder stand, and that's where they're going to hunt. They're, they're not going to put a climber on their back and go prospect. And that's the way it is with most hunting clubs. 
you know, you got, and I'm sure you're familiar, there's probably, I've seen some clubs set up like this, where each member is designated in an area, and that member can only hunt that area. That's your area, you hunt it. You don't get to go anywhere else on the property. I don't want to be in a piece of property that way. I want to be in a piece of property where I can hunt. Now, I'm not going to step on anybody's toes. If I know somebody's hunting an area, I'm not going to go in there and, you know, and get in their back pocket. But I want to be able to have freedom of the property. And most of the time, you're going to have that on a club because guys are like i say they're gonna have spots they want to hunt you know you've got these guys nowadays you see them they hunting out of these big elevated box stands because it's comfortable i got a heater in there when it's cold and you know i can be comfortable and you know but i'm you know to me that just takes so much of your hunting away from you as far as you know if you want to be successful in killing big deer on a consistent basis then you're going to have to be mobile you're going to have to move with the food sources, and you're going to have to be able to move move with even the foliage change. You know, when with the trees, when they lose all their leaves, and you're going, you're going to have to find the thickets where the deer are going to be. They, it, you know, it's just, that's, that's just the way it is. You're going to have to, whether it be thick planted pines or be a, you know, a beaver swamp or whatever, you're going to have to find where them jokers is bedding at and try to slip in there as close as you can to them, uh, especially when you got dealing with nocturnal deer. And uh, if, if you want to try to get, you know, uh, a shot at them in the daytime, it's just the way it is. Tim, I want to dive into that a little bit more. That That's another subject that we've kind of been uh, beating around the bush on kind of all fall is that, that leaf drop. And it's something we've talked about increasingly over the last couple of years. Cause I feel like here in the South, you know, you, you, it's like the Midwestern equivalent of like the, the crops come out, like they cut the corn and the beans and it changes the deer. Well, down here, the leaves drop and that's like the, that's the big change is when that happens. So can you describe that, that change and the kind of effects you see it uh, having on deer and how you adapt to that? Well, you know, a hundred percent of the time when the leaves drop, then that means the mast has dropped. I mean, there's still, there's still going to be leaves on the trees when the mast is falling. But you, once the mast is gone, then the next thing that comes out is the leaves. All right? then, so now everything's bare. I mean, you got light coming in where you didn't have light, and and the and the deer know that too. And uh, you you got to find you got to find where they're going to bed and sleep because that's where they're going to feel the safest. But you got to get right in their back pocket, like I say, if you want to try to catch them moving in the daylight. So. I, uh, the leaf drop is something that I find is it, it's so impactful. It's just so impactful where we hunt, and I'm sure Tim's the same thing where you're at. There's such a big shift there where where there was bucks hanging out and deer hanging out, you know, back in September and even early October through October. You know, they are null and void now in November going into December, um, and especially like some of these transition areas completely change, especially in these areas where you have a lot more of that kind of security cover, maybe around areas that have a lot of logging happening, you got a lot of pines. Um, and again, just kind of shifting with that motion of kind of how those deer react to it. It, it. From your years of experience, especially hunting down the deep south, you know, when it comes to trying to, you know, I guess pattern a buck or, you know, based off the sign and everything, is there anything that you can take away from what he will do? And I you know every buck's different, but what kind of general pattern will happen when that leaf drops and he kind of moves back into more of that security cover, especially as maybe, you know, gun season's coming in and throughout the law of the Southeast and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's just like, a, you know, my my basic go-to hunt is when the, like when the leaves drop out and everything thicker is better. There, it's almost no such thing 
it's too thick for a white-tailed deer. Because I have seen deer come out of stuff, or I have tracked deer that I have shot on my bow and go, oh, ain't no way he went in there. And you look, and there goes the blood trail in there. And you're like, Duh. well, yeah, he did too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, the later in the year, one thing, one little advantage if you might have, say I hunt with my ears as much as I do my eyes. And once the leaf, once you have the leaf drop, now, now, the, the 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 leaf litter on the ground makes it much noisier for a deer to travel versus when the leaves are still in the trees, if that makes sense to you. And you know you got places where if the leaf litter is thick enough, then it's gonna be. And when it's dry, you know, and, you know, and not damp, but when you have, you know, good dry conditions for a week or so, I mean, it's like they it's like I'm walking on tater chips, you know. That they're gonna make some noise, you know. Won't be able to slip up in your back pocket like they can, you know, before all the leaf litter falls. All right, so Tim, you got me all excited with this, uh, the, the leaf litter and um, kind of hunting with your ears. I actually just had a conversation. I just recorded a uh, listener success story today, and we were talking about leaf litter with a leaf drop up in the mountains of uh, northwest Arkansas. And um, one thing he mentioned was in the dark, he got into the spot real early one one uh, one morning and got there literally like an hour and a half before dark or before daylight and had deer come by him through the saddle and he could hear kind of where they were going and, and kind of, you know, what drains they dropped down into and all this stuff about just by listening with his ears. And I told him that's something I've done with scouting where I will hunt a spot. And this, I'm kind of glad we can talk about this a little bit, hunt a spot in, especially if you get into an area real early on a morning hunt and it's real quiet, especially if you got into an area, I'm talking, you know, an hour before daylight for whatever reason, like you knew the spot to get it to and you need to get in early and you're sitting there and you can literally hear the deer filter back through the area that you're in. And the and one thing you can do is if you're paying attention, you can hear them at what distance potentially where they're walking through. And if they walk past you, what direction do they come from? What direction do they go? And then when the sun comes up, maybe you see some deer, maybe you don't, but you know where they came through and knew kind of the direction they were going. And that can help you fine tune not only your scouting, but also, hey, maybe I was off the ball by 60 to 80 yards. I need to move forward in this thicket or get around this edge of this thicket to another side based off the movement of the deer from what I heard. And, and with the climber, you can do that your very next hunt. Absolutely. Say, it's, say that. Say that's the morning, and you want to hunt that evening, and you want to try to catch those deer as soon as they get up. Then you you slip, you slip with that climber on your back towards the direction you heard the deer go, and and then get up a tree, and and then you play that game again until you get in their back pocket. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's it's all about staying mobile, and that's a another really good point of this episode. Is, is like. You know, you made the comment, if you want to kill, you know, big, big deer consistently, you know, you've got to be mobile. You, you can't just sit there and wait for them to come to you. You've got to go and actually how, hunt those deer. How many times have you heard one of your hunting buddies say, I can't hunt my spot today. The wind's wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's because he's handicapped himself to a permanent stand and he can't play the wind like you can with a climber. Yeah, it's, it's like all about staying it's that simple. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that simple. And also, I'll say this. Well, I, I, another thing to that is is having the woodsmanship and, and the 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 mindset of you, you've got to always be doing some scouting and in season scouting, which we can talk about in just a second with you. But like in season scouting, find you like as these shifts happen throughout the season. You know, going from you know early season into pre rut, into the rut, into post rut, into potentially secondary rut, and everything else. You know, as the deer shift a little bit and the sign shifts, you shifting with them instead of sitting, you know, you set a stand up in, you know, September 
for an area you're going to hunt in October and you hunt that same stand all the way through the end of the season and you, you stop seeing deer for whatever reason. That's absolutely. Well, here, here's a prime example. If you're sitting in a stand in September, you're basically going to be hunting soft mast. You know, there is no sign in the white oaks. There is no sign in the swamp chestnut oaks because there's no acorns. There's no reason for the deer to be there because there's no food there, you know. And as the season progresses, your soft mast is gone. So you start picking up acorns and you got different acorns. Usually your pin oaks and your water oaks are the first ones to start falling. And after that's white oaks and then swamp chestnut oaks are the last ones to fall. That's the way it is in our area, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So like the, well, and that's kind of where I was getting at, especially for, you know, some of our private land guys, you know, if you aren't hunting, you know, mobile on that private land, whether it's a family farm, you're your own private property you own, whether it is a lease, a club, whatever, you know, if you're not hunting mobile and you're hunting a predetermined stand location, yeah, some of those stands could be great. You know, maybe you got a food pot, maybe you got a power line, something like that. You know, maybe you have some opportunity, but you're doing a lot more kind of hanging and what we call hanging hope instead of hanging and hunting. Um, because you're hoping that a deer is going to come through there. You're hoping that a deer is going to be, you know, coming to that food pot. You're hoping a deer is going to cross that cutover or that power line, which maybe they do, maybe they don't, versus going in there and I guess you could look at it being a little bit more aggressive, but what I would call is being more of a proactive hunter instead of a passive hunter. Yeah, well, it's the same thing when I, when I talk to people about bow hunting. You basically got two types of bow hunters. You got the guy that sees a big buck, and the first thing goes through is my, oh, God, oh, God, I hope I get him. Oh, oh God, I hope I get him. Oh, God, I hope I get him. My mentality is give me a shot. Just give me an ethical bow shot because it's my responsibility as a bow hunter to be ready for the shot. And I was talking to a young fellow the other day, and I was telling him, man, you know, you got to shoot some deer. I said, you can't sit there all season and wait for just one particular deer because you're not going to be ready. People ask me all the time, why do you hunt hogs in the heat of the summertime? I said, because I am hunting a live animal that's smart, that can smell me just like a deer can or even better. And I said, it prepares me for deer season, plus I'm putting food. I'm putting meat in the freezer. I'm not just out there sweating for nothing. You know, I'm I'm shooting live animals. I'm not shooting stagnant targets. And sometimes when you want to do a program about it, and I can, you know, I could really, in fact, I'm fixing to write an article about this. You know, I'm kind of a cliffhanger type article writer. I'll start out with the hunt until I get to the point of the shot. And then when I get to the shot part, I go into the technical part of my article, and then when I get through with the technical part, I'll finish the hunt at the end. It's what I call like a cliffhanger story. But I'm fixing to write an article on how much damage 3D archery has done to the hunting side of archery. And you're going to have guys that's hearing me say that, and they're going to go, well, what's he talking about? And just let me give you a few examples. The first 3D tournament I went to was in the early 1980s, and we went shot our hunting bows and they were basically paper-faced targets that were attached to hay bales they were you know two-dimensional targets just basically paper targets with pictures on them you know with kill zones drawn on them you know two of my biggest pet peeves about the, the 3d archery 3d archery is a game all right other than teaching you how to judge the distance of a stagnant animal dash dash target from the ground and keeping your bow shooting muscles in condition 3d archery does you no good to help you in a hunting situation and that's a fact i'll argue that point with anybody you know the average guy when you hunt around here now if you're hunting in a big field or a food plot 
you may have plenty of time to use a rangefinder. But if you got a buck, dog, and a doe around you, you got to already know what the ranges are around you because that range is changing constantly. The average guy practices in his yard from a tree. I'm going to say 99.9% .9 of people that practice with their bows shoot from the ground at a block or a 3D target in their yard. Yet 99.9% .9 of us hunt from a tree, which is a totally different angle, a totally different way. The, the biggest mistake most archers make is they lower their bow arm to shoot from a tree instead of bending at their waist and keeping their arm parallel with their shoulder. That's why most guys shoot high from a tree stand. Number one, they ain't practiced it. Number two, they don't bend at the waist. You know what I'm saying? Just ask you guys. Y'all shoot a bow, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to ask you if you would if you'd go into more detail and explain it. We have a lot of a lot of new hunters that listen to the podcast too, and they may not know exactly what you're meaning. This is a, a good little tangent for the show as we kind of work through the topic. But again, not dropping the bow arm, but bending at the waist for those shots, especially those shots. You know, no matter the range, but especially close shots. A lot of guys might miss range, but also drop that bow arm. They shoot, you know, six eight inches high, and they think the deer. Duck, but the deer didn't ever duck. Did you just shot over the top of it? Well, it, here, it, you know, it's, it's not to open Pandora's box here, but there's so many little fingers you can go out here. Like I, you know, when I try to teach people about bow hunting, you should never get above the target and come down. You should always get below your target and come up. And here's the reason for that: if you get above the target and come down, 99% of guys in a hunting situation are going to do what I call a drive-by. They're going to try to drop that pin on the animal and pull the trigger at the same time. It's, it's actually a form of target panic, okay? So if you do that, then your shot's already going to be high. Well, if the deer ducks or starts to duck, okay, guess what? Your shot's going to be higher. So you're going to wind up either spining a deer or shooting over the deer. Now, let's, let's reverse that scenario. You get below the deer and come up. If you prematurely hit the trigger on a drive-by, okay, the deer is ducking. He's basically dropping down to get leverage to push off to run. Well, he's going into the path of the arrow. He's dropping into the arrow versus dropping away from it from above. That makes sense to you? Yep. Yes, sir. Because I've watched hogs react from just from watching videos and self-videoing for years. Even turkeys will react to the sound of a bow. They will squat to fly because they got you know turkey's got believe it or not a gobbler has got to jump to fly if you could walk up to a gobbler and take a machete and chop his legs out from under him and he lands on his breast he can't fly he ain't got no he can't get no air under his wings to get lift a lot of people don't realize that and i and i've learned that over the years because i have shot a couple of turkeys with my bow where i shot them low and just basically shot both their legs out from under them and they landed on their chest and couldn't fly couldn't get air under the wings you know but there, there's a whole different, you know, there's a whole lot of things I could go through, like 3D archery. And, and, you know, let me back up. I have absolutely nothing against 3D archery. I have shot it, okay? But 3D archery is a game. You can't go to the woods with a 12-foot stabilizer and a scope sight that's six, you know, 12 or 16 inches off your boat. You got a buddy beside you holding up an umbrella to keep the glare off your sight. And you've pretty much got unlimited time once you stand at the stake to shoot the target. You got the option to draw back, and if the shot don't feel right, you can let down. In a hunting situation, that's a fallacy. On average, you got five to seven seconds from the time you see an animal to the time you take a shot in a hunting situation, you know. And it's just a fact. It's just something that, you know, and like I say, you know, the scoring rings on a, on a 3D target, they're too high. They teach you to aim too high on an animal. You know, it's great for scoring if you're trying, you know, for, for you know, if you're trying to get the high score 
in that game. That's what I'm saying. You know, the 3D archery is a game. It's not hunting. You know, they they teach you to aim too high on an animal that's alive with a target, if that makes sense to you, because of the way he's going to react, you know, especially if you go to a 3D shoot where they've got the target's angle, okay? Well, on them angle targets, the, the scoring rings don't change. They're the same. So, where you would need to shoot a little more left or a little more right because the target's angled, it doesn't teach you to do that. It teaches you to aim in the same place, which on a quarter two shot means you're going to go in the vitals on this side and you're going to come out behind the diaphragm on the other. And you basically, the, 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 the small or large intestine or the stomach is going to plug that hole where you've got your exit. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spurmaster, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP20 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, to be honest, Tim, I think that would be something, uh, especially maybe like a little bit later on in the season or this off season, because we're actually going to keep deer content, uh, deer episodes coming out um, you know, all next year. We're not going to just fade out deer and just go straight turkey. We're going to do deer and turkey. Um, I think that would be an interesting off-season topic of like staying honed with the skill of actually killing, shooting animals versus just shooting a target um, and maybe looking for more opportunity, you know, postseason after season to get out in the woods and go try to go hog hunting. If you live in an area that has wild hogs and everything else, and get more opportunities under your belt of more, just really more kills. Because the more opportunities you get at releasing arrows, the more times you can figure out, you know, what's working and what's not working for you, and how to keep your cool and also be able to stay on target with a live animal that's constantly moving, especially a hog. Nothing moves more than a freaking hog. I, I, <laughs> oh, no. I, I agree with you. And, you know, it, 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 I'm going to make a point here if I don't lose my train of thought. But the first point is getting permission to hunt wild hogs is one of the easiest permissions you can get in the off season. Okay. Now, I, you know, you may have a hard time getting permission to hunt hogs on a deer lease when people are deer hunting. I understand that. But in the off season, if they've got a hog issue, a lot of times it's easy to get permission to hunt, especially if it's a farmer. You know, he's a oh man, you kill them all. I don't care. You kill every you kill everyone you can kill. You know, you're doing him a favor, you know. And like I say, how good do you think a quarterback would be if he only threw passes on game day? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point, my man. I like that. That's an awesome point. That really is. I mean, I'm not saying that to sound arrogant or egotistical, but or how good would a baseball player be if he only stepped up to the plate? during the game never took practice swings never had batting practice it's hard it'd be very difficult to be efficient or be good and it's the same way with archer you know if you're shooting live animals and shooting animals you know on a consistent basis so you'll be ready you know when the big moment arrives it's uh, just 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 it's basic to me it's common sense you know but you you know in fact I had a guy, he come in my shop here a while back, and he told me he'd made the decision that he wasn't going to be shooting any more bucks unless he thought they made Pope and Young, and I told him to buy him a good quality feather duster. And he looked at me real funny. He said, what do I need with a feather duster? And I said, because you're going to need it to knock the cobwebs off of you because you're going to be sitting there a while in the state of Georgia. <laughs> and then he kind of he went, 
Well, yeah, I see what you mean by that. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I, I'll say this. That's a good point. So many people get so, – so many people, I don't know, shoot whatever makes you happy. That's my thing. Like shoot whatever yeah, makes oh, you yeah. happy. Like, Absolutely. I, like I, I, yeah. I just killed a probably a, a ninety inch. No, he's probably not even that big. Eight point a couple a couple weeks ago, and I was freaking thrilled to death with that freaking thing. Even though I had a landowner give me hell for it. No, that was <laughs> Jacob. I just don't know if I'd have shot that. <laughs> Jesus <dude. laughs> Christ. Anyways, Tim, I have to give you the backstory on that later. Listeners know what we're talking about. Um, but anyway, um, it, when it comes to a true 120, 125 inch deer, I mean, Puppin Young's 125 inch, you know, minimum, but like. 120 inch buck dude that is a freaking great deer anywhere i mean especially in the southeast where we have multiple buck tags and it's like absolutely so, so many people get so worked up like i want to kill I, I actually had the same conversation with uh this listener we did the listener success story with uh so many people get so worked up. i want to kill a 140 i want to kill a 150 and like if you do that first of all you got to do one of two things you got to either go to an area and hunt an area that actually has a higher quality of buck or higher quality bucks to, to actually have deer like that or you've got to just get extremely lucky with where you're at. Cause if you're in an area where the average buck is say 110 inches, 115 inches, uh, and like the outstanding deer might be 125 inches. And maybe every 10 years you find a deer that might be 140. The likelihood you're going to kill one of those deer in the 125 plus inches. You're going to go many of years without shooting deer. And a great example, I've got an uncle, actually the uncle that got me in, into hunting. And that was his thing. You know, he got to a point where he didn't want to shoot a deer unless it was 125 inches. And he literally went eight years without killing a buck, without pulling the trigger or, or releasing the air out of buck because he never saw a deer that was like that. I'm like, dude, I had a, I had a conversation with him a couple of years ago. I was like, listen, I mean, if that makes you happy, that's awesome. I mean, if that makes you happy, if, it's, if you're happy passing deer because you've got this goal in mind and you're just going to shoot does, that's awesome. That You know, you do you. But at some point, it's got to be like where it's just not fun. I mean, that's just me, the, the way I look at it. So I'm like, you know, I, I agree with you. You know, get, get the, you're going to have to get the old Swiffer out, whatever, the duster, because <laughs> you're going to have to be dusting the antlers you get right now if you're going to be waiting that much longer for potentially that kind of quality of buck. Because it's just, it's just hard to find them, uh, to be honest. So, You know, the, the trophy's in the eye of the beholder, okay? There are some people out there that don't give a hoot about antlers. They're meat hunters. I understand that. I respect that. You know, I, you know, I'm a taxidermist by trade, you know, and my thing is if it's legal and it makes you happy, then shoot it. Okay. You know, you see, you see too many people, you know, the old green eyed monster gets them, you know, oh, I had that deer on camera for two years. You know, you got killed, you know, you shot him. I was trying to let him get older, you know, and, you know, and, you know, and the guy, instead of being, being, Instead of sticking his hand out and congratulating the guy, he's he's gonna bash him, you know. And that's a you you got to remember as hunters. I don't care if you throw rocks at them or spears or crossbow or bow or muzzleloader or rifle or shotgun. We all on the same team, you know. If it's legal and it makes you happy, and it's just like you know, I'm I'm in one club that's 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 pretty well what I'd call I won't say strictly trophy managed, but it's heavily trophy managed and. I had a talk with a landowner. Um, this has probably been seven, eight years ago. We sat down and had a heart to heart. And he said, we just having too many of our small bucks killed. I said, it's real simple. Go to a one buck limit. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, the state limits too. I said, if you go to a one buck limit on this property, I said, then they're going to be a whole lot more choosy about what they shoot. Because we were having too many of them, oh, I thought he was bigger deer getting shot. Since we went to that one buck rule, do you know how many bucks we've had killed that the 
member said, I thought he was bigger, not one. Because they understand when they pull that trigger on a buck, that's their buck. And here's another thing. If you if they take a guest, let's say I'm I'm in this club and I invite you over here to hunt with me. If you shoot a buck, that's my buck. Okay. You're getting basically what the point I'm getting at is you're getting one buck with that membership amount. Can't take a guest and let him shoot one. The only exception to that would be is if I had a child or a grandchild that was under the age of of sixteen. Okay. But they can only do it one time. It's called a legacy buck. If they've never killed a buck, they can shoot a buck one time, you know, for their first one. Okay, that does not count against the member's buck, if that makes sense to you. Okay, but if you take a guest and that guest shoots a buck, then we also have another deal called the buck of a lifetime. Okay, and this is how that works. Let's say I've killed my buck for the season and I go out to the club and I want to, I'm going to try to shoot me a doe or two. And the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life steps out. Can I shoot it? I can shoot it, but it's a $500 fine to the club to go towards food plots and road maintenance, but I can only do that one time ever, ever. Can ever, yeah, I mean, if I was to go for 10 years after that, I've killed a buck and a Boone and Crockett steps out there, I cannot shoot him according to our club rules. And that, I mean, but what I, the point I'm trying to make here is there are properties, if you want to just shoot deer, then find you a piece of property where they just shoot deer. But if you want a trophy manager, you want an above average chance of taking a trophy deer, and you're gonna have to spend money to do it. I mean, it just that's just that simple. You know, you get what you pay for in anything. You know, you either it's kind, it's kind of like being pregnant. You, you either gonna trophy manage or you're not gonna trophy manage. There ain't no almost, there ain't ain't no gray area there. You either are, or you aren't. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tim, I want I want to hit on another topic that uh, we kind of had touched on earlier, uh, and it's the uh, topic of going prospecting. That's something that's a term you use is prospecting. You know, with a with a climber in your back and, and going into an area, uh, you know, we're looking for the sign and just being very mobile and very open minded with how you're hunting. Can you? I, I want to come at this from a couple different angles. We we've got one question on here that is uh, particular from a, a guest or I'm sorry, a listener who uh, wants to know uh, just about noise, but I, I want to hold on that just for a second. When you're going prospecting, do you pre-plan a path of like, I'm going to work through this area, or do you pretty much just look at the wind and like, you're just like, okay, this time I'm working from the Southeast. Man, I got a Northwest wind. I'm working from the Southeast, working Northwest. You know, how do you go about planning, you know, when you're going out there and going prospecting for, for a buck in season scouting, stand your back, bow in your hand? Yeah, well, wind would be number one. You always want to try to walk with the wind in your face. Um, I, I, you know, I try to, uh, <laughs> I try to, and I think I mentioned this to you before. You know, a lot of times when I'm scouting, as I'm easing along, I don't want to sound like Sasquatch going through the woods. A lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of, I like to do the hen turkey deal. You know, I walk along and basically, especially if it's a noisy leaf litter where I'm at. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to yelp every once in a while while I'm walking for, you know, whatever's in there is going to think I'm a turkey. And uh, I know some people will laugh at that, but it's pretty, pretty simple to do. And man, I have walked up on deer before that were bedded. And, and I guess they thought I was a turkey because they just exploded under my feet. And I'm going, well, I got pretty close to that one. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I love that element of surprise. You know, you put the climber on your back, you got your wind in the face and you're slipping. And if it's that time of year where the acorn crop's falling, or if it's soft mast, um, you know, I'll go that route. Or if it's late season, after all the leaves have come down, I want to try to come in 
from the downwind side of where I think the deer are bedding. I want to get right in their back pocket so if they get up before um, dark, you know, I'm going to have a chance to see them. And there again, there'll be sometimes you'll be in your stand and it'll be past legal shooting time and you're getting ready to get down and you hear a deer coming. And you're, so you just sit there, you hear it walking, but you can't see it can't tell what it is you might can silhouette it but you can't tell what you couldn't tell a sex of it or if it had a big rack on its head or but then again you you've listened to where it's come from so okay well, if i come back tomorrow or the next day i'm just going to get a little deeper i'm going to try to get a little closer you know um and i might even do a little light rattling or i might do some a little bit of grunting or maybe even a snort wheeze you know a snort wheeze is probably one of the most underrated deer calls there is you know and that's just a, a buck trying to tell another buck that this is his area and you know he's he's the dominant force in that area and you know get get away from him um but you know yelping like the, like yelping like the turkey is pretty easy you know it's just it's just simple and of course i've been around a lot of turkeys too not not just feathered ones but people but uh it's uh, it's, it's really simple to do it's just basically just a little light yelp just As you're walking along, and uh, like I say, you'd be surprised what you can get away with doing that. Oh yeah, we're about to, we're about to go down this rabbit hole again. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so this is something Andrew's been doing for a couple of years now, I guess. Yeah, I've been doing it for probably four a- years now. Andrew, hit hit us with your natural voice. He's got pretty good. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Yes. Yeah. So Andrew, an- listen, Andrew, you got to kill old turkey this year. By the way, natural voice. You oh, put I know. The calls I up. want to. It's funny, man. That that I call him up all the time in the fall doing that but i never try it in yeah. the spring do that kiki run baby yeah <laughs> <laughs> little jenny running around yeah, <laughs> yeah but but anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh so andrew but anyways we we, we he does this quite a bit i, I try to do i sound terrible i mean I, I sound like almost a dying turkey but you you're know you're calling to deer you don't have to sound i that know good. i know you, you, you just gotta practice man I, i've heard I, some wild turkey hens that couldn't call worth a darn i'm I, like that's somebody that wind up being a real hen and i'm like wait you need to go back. You need to go back to voice lessons or whatever. That don't, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, you don't sound like yourself. Yep. So, well, I was. I wanted to bring that up just because it's something that it's such a good thing for people to to focus on and look at, it, especially in the fall when you know maybe you it's a quiet afternoon. Talking you're talking afternoon here, mid morning, midday. You're trying to slip through an area, and there's a lot of leaf litter on the ground. Um, it's just it's hard to get through. Quiet. You're going to be making a lot of noise. Doing some soft yelps, uh, or if you got a mouth call, a diaphragm call, and you can actually do like, like some key keys or something like that, that it would be fantastic and working work so well on sneaking up on deer and really just kind of work your way through an area, especially as you're looking for sign in. I mean, we'll do it, so especially if me and Andrew are walking in together to a spot. He'll do it, and it sounds we sound like two turkeys. And every you know five ten yards, we'll scratch the leaves with our with our boot. You know, yeah. you know, kind of kick That's the leaves right. back. Yeah. And I mean, you can get right up on deer. And this is this is something, Tim. I want you to talk about because I know you're a big old turkey hunter over here. I truly believe that when a deer hears turkeys, it puts them at ease because everything in the woods wants to eat a turkey. And when that turkey is kind of sounding all relaxed, it puts them at ease like, oh, there's no danger. There's nothing to worry about. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's basically, a, it's a confidence call. Yes, that's what it is. Mm, I love it. I love it. Anyways, that, yeah, that's a hot tip for everybody. Again, we talked about it before, but yeah, definitely, if you can't do natural voice, grab you a diaphragm call. If you can't use a diaphragm call, get you a little push button call or something like that. Uh, and just and just learn it. Get take the I take a sl- I take a slate call and just do real soft. Yeah, man. And hey, I'll say, I mean, you know, you can do kikis and everything, but 
I would say don't. I mean, don't overcomplicate it. I mean, they're they're deer. Uh, it's not like we're calling to like a weary old gobbler. I mean, all all it is is trying to put that deer at ease. And I mean, really, two or three yelps every once in a while is plenty. In my well, opinion. yeah, you know, if you think about it, if a deer's just if a deer's bedded and he hears something in the leaves, his attention's going to be focused on that until he sees what's making the noise, or else he hears whatever's making the noise, making noise that he's, uh, you know, accustomed to. And then he, he, you know, he he doesn't, he's not, he's not as attentive. He's like, oh, it's something walking in the leaves. Oh, it's just a turkey. Yeah, it's just a turkey. And uh, and I have all, I have all confidence. That's how they think. Yep. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I think it's just something that if you can do it and you have that mindset, like if you're slipping through an area, especially mid-morning, at early afternoon, and you're just doing that call, uh, just some soft yelps as you're walking through and just kind of break up your cadence. Like, yeah, hey, maybe your turkey's scratching around, especially in the leaves a little bit. It's like you can just get right up on deer. And even deer that could be up and feeding, like if they hear that from a distance, they're not going to pay you any attention then. They're, I mean, it's uh, it, it's kind of it's cool how that can work for you. So I'm, I'm glad you brought There's that up. There's something else you can do, and there's going to be some people laugh at this, but they can laugh all they want to, because, but I've used this technique before. Let's just say you have a, a deer, whether it be a matriarch doe or something, and she picks you off in the tree, okay? Let's just say she glances up there and she sees something she doesn't like and she just bounds off. She ain't snorting. She just bounds off like, what was that? A lot of times I'll do the cadence of a barred owl and it makes them settle right back down. They're like, oh, that was just an owl. You know, it wasn't. I was thinking it was something else, you know. But, yeah, I'll, I've done that a many times just to do. And it makes the deer settle right back down. To make them, you know, it just, it, it, you know, in my mind, it's making them think, well, that movement I saw was an owl. It wasn't danger, you know? Interesting. That's not one I've heard before. Ooh. I'm going to do that. I love I'm going to do that when I scare works, a deer this man. weekend. It, it works. It makes them settle right back down. Well, also, if you think about this, an owl, you know, has that predatory kind of eye set, you know, eyes facing forward, yeah, kind like, of flat just face. Just like when the way an owl turns, you know, eyes in front. Absolutely. We're, we're, the, we're the same way, you know? You turn your head and he catches that movement, and then you know, especially if it's a barn owl, a barn owl's got a real white face, you know, with the eyes in front. And man, I've it, it's really like I say, there's gonna be some people that laugh at that, but that's let them laugh. But I have made really, I've made deer, even deer that were out there, even if they bounced off and you can hear them out there stomping, you know, you can owl and it, it makes them settle right down. I mean, it's just like, oh, oh, man, you know, oh, it's an owl. I thought it was, I thought it was something else, you know. All right, Andrew, you got a hiss, you got a hiss with your owl. You, you gotta, you gotta unmute yourself. Let's hear, let's hear it. That's about awful. as good as I can do Great. right now. <laughs> when yeah. I get going, I can get the, I can roll it at the end, but my throat's all dry. Right it's now. not turkey. Gotta work up a little. Yeah, but by that. February, Angel have it down. That and he'll have all oh, his dang, calls. Right. I'll be doing it in traffic. <laughs> you just got to be able to do it when your heart's going ninety miles an hour. God, that's 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 a good one. I like that, dude. That that is a uh, woodsmanship, get, man. Woodsmanship one hundred and one. Yeah. So um, I want to kind of get back to the whole prospecting idea, though. So when you're going in, you know, when's, you know, by far going to be important for you? What are some of the other things that you're taking consideration? And, and maybe I asked the same question to um, Warren Womack uh, this past week. If you're in flatlands and you're going prospecting, what does it look like your path to travel? Are you following waterways? Are you following habitat edges? What are you doing in flatland compared to what you might do in hill country and what, like in path? A, a waterway is always an awesome place to follow because the water is going to take you to, to either crossings or where the deer are watering 
Plus, if that waterway is small enough, if it's not over, you know, if it's not over knee deep, you can get in the waterway and travel, whether it be a slough or a little creek or a little stream. Um, you know, up in Tennessee, there's places up there, you know, those pretty little streams that's in the hills. They won't be ankle deep, but they'll be shoot 15, 20 yards wide. And man, you can get in them things. Yes, there's some places here you can do that. You can really no sin either, you know, because you're walking in the water and you can walk quiet. And then you just study, you might find a good creek crossing or it might take you to a bedding area. You know, it's just a, yeah, a waterway is always something good, whether it's a slough or a creek. It's a, that's a great, you know, that's a great means of egress, you know, to get into a hunting spot. Now, if you're, let me ask this, if you're walking a waterway though, and you're walking down in the waterway, I've done this before and it's awesome slipping through an area. But the problem is unless you're finding creek crossings or maybe a rub real close to the water, especially if it's. You know, you know, some place that, you know, you may hunt or especially we may hunt, you know, we don't really have, especially where we're at, a bunch of like real high cut creek banks. Like you might find an ag country where you might find, I mean, a creek that literally has a 30 foot bank on each side. It's kind of crazy. Um, but a lot of stuff we have is a little more gradual where you get down the creek and you kind of look outside the edge of the creek on both ways. But when you're walking a waterway, what are some of those things that you're trying to key in on? Like, what are some of those things you're focusing on, especially maybe, you know, getting towards the pre-rut, the rut, and maybe post-rut, if you're walking a waterway? There's always, there's just about always going to be major crossings. There's going to be places they just like to cross, and that's, you know, that's what you would look for. And that's, that's what I would look for. Uh, I would look for a major cross and, or, or just try to find, you know, deer got to have water. You know, um, if it's the only, if it's the only water on that property, I would certainly concentrate on that. You know, just as a water source, not not as you know, not so much as a crossing area. Now, for crossings, let me ask you this: it, Does does are there different? Uh, I guess you say um, I'm not going to say calibers. Different? Um, how could I, I guess you could say different? Uh, God, caliber score. I'm trying to think of another synonym here different levels of a certain crossing that's going to make you want to hunt it or, or, or really kind of check it out well, more so that well, others are you trying are you trying to ask me are there, are there secondary and primary crossings yes there well, are well that but also if and we can talk about that but okay 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 andrew, andrew, i want to hear about that uh, okay andrew andrew wants to hear about that so yeah let, let's talk about we'll talk about secondary and primary crossings and what does that look like especially maybe if a buck potentially has a, a secondary crossing compared to where all the does are coming across I, you know, a primary crossing is where it's going to be just a lot of deer traffic. It might be a bunch of does and yearlings crossing there in and out every day, you know. Um, the experience I've had with, like, creek crossings like that is most of the time, if you've got several different crossings, the buck is more apt to travel parallel with the creek, and he's going to check those crossings and try to cut a doe's track. It's the same way when you hunt around fields. If you got multiple trails coming to a field, I don't really want to hunt where I can see in the field. I want to hunt inside the wood line because that buck is going to travel the inside of that wood line and cross as many of those doe trails as he can to try to cut a track on a doe that might be coming, you know, into estrus. Interesting. Okay. So when it comes, if you're, okay, and this, uh, I guess that kind of would go hand in hand with what I wanted to ask. When you're checking creek crossings, of course, I'm sure you're looking for tracks and, and trying to find potentially, you know, those larger set of tracks of a buck coming through compared to your does. But also, does do you take higher consideration of a creek crossing uh, the, based off where it's located at? Where, say, maybe it's like smack dab in a little SMZ on a small creek between two big pine thickets compared to if it was like an open hardwoods. That's kind of where I was getting at. Like, oh, absolutely. I, I would, I, I want to be in the pine thickets. That's where I want to be. Man, if there's a creek crossing, Let's just say you've had timber cut 
and they left a SMZ along the creek, but they planted pines on both sides of it. I definitely, even if I can't see 10 yards in either direction, that's where I want to be. I mean, I, because as a bow hunter, it don't do you any good to sit up there where you can see 100 yards. I mean, I like to get right in their back pocket. It's, it's like we was talking about way back in the earlier part of the broadcast. You know, I can shoot with anybody at 20 yards. Okay, and to have the woodsmanship, a lot of people lack the woodsmanship to be able to put themselves in a position to where they've got a 20-yard shot at an animal or less. And that's just a fact, you know. Yeah, it's it's like not worrying so much about how far you can shoot, but more like how close can I get to him to get a better ethical shot? It, absolutely. I mean, you can't you can't kill him if you can't see, you know. And I know that sounds kind of being a little old duh, you know, way to go, Cap Mobius. But, but it's the truth, you know. You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, they say, well, how many deer have you seen in your life? How many trophy bucks have you seen that you couldn't get a shot at? And for me, it's only been a very slight handful because the places I hunt, if I can see a deer, he's in bow range. I mean, that's just the type of places I like to hunt. Oh, yeah. You're speaking our language. Now, listen, if, if, if we had a love language with this podcast, it'd be thickets. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. So uh, anyway, so I want to get into this a little bit more. So we're talking creek crossings, of course. You know, creek crossings in between two thickets is by far going to be more of a hot spot you're going to focus on versus maybe in like open hardwoods and everything else. So that that's a key there. So so working waterways is going to be important for you as part of your prospecting. Now let's take the flip side back. Maybe you have a property that doesn't have any major creek systems running through it. Maybe you have some just more runoff drainages and everything. Maybe you're like you're in hill country or or you know maybe even flatlands, just not not with a lot of water. How do you go about prospecting in areas where maybe there's not that larger uh, water source like a creek running through that you can use for travel corridors? I mean, are you going to be running tops of ridges? Or are you going to be running, you know, bottoms and just working your way through bobs until you cut sign? Yeah. What does that look like? Depends on what time of the year. Yeah, I mean, if if, if, if the mast is falling, I'm going to be looking on ridges, you know, for, for acorns that are falling. But when if it's after the mast drop, then I'm going to be trying to find the thickest place on that property because that's where this deer are going, especially if they've had any kind of pressure on them. If it's a hunting club or whether it's public land or whatever, I mean, the thicker, the better. Now, you know, I've learned that from hunting hogs too. You know, it's uh, there's no such thing as too thick for a deer or too thick for a hog. Believe me, I, I have learned that. All right, perfect. So let's, let's talk about, you know, trying to take that mass crops out of it. Like right now, you know, for Georgia in the later part of the season, you know, here in Alabama, we still have a lot of season ahead of us and a lot of really good hunting and even the rut to come, Mississippi and Louisiana, some of these, a lot of these other states, same way. Um, if it's like this point of the season where, you know, firearm season's in, uh, you know, you've got, you know, leaves, you know, leaf falls off, you know, the deer are definitely in the thickets. What does your prospecting look like? What does your prospecting look like when targeting bucks and deer that are in thickets? How do you like to approach areas, especially if you're dealing with pines, uh, thick areas? How do you go about prospecting and, and kind of working your way through there to figure out where do you need to set up based off the sign that you're finding? It's just it's just simple. I, it, you get downwind, you go in from the downwind side, and you basically hunt your way in. I may hunt this spot and realize I'm not deep enough in. Then I may go in a little deeper and then a little deeper. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just, it's a crapshoot game. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to go in there and go right, right through the middle of the heart of it and blow everything out of there. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. And I found a, I found a. You, you go, you're gonna, you're gonna hunt your way in, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, and I, actually, I found a guy who, uh, an area I, I hunted slash scouted a couple of days ago, and that old boy 
he just he just decided, hey, I'm I'm walking right through the middle of this prime day. Hey, hey, you're one to talk. I remember last year, I I I had this great spot pinned out on the map. It's actually the spot where I think I'm gonna be killing me a buck in a week or two. Uh, and I was like, "Hey, man, go check this out." And Jacob, he sends me his track, and he has walked oh. <laughs> straight through the middle of the bedding area. I'm like, "What are you doing?" Hey, it was, it was probably one, his pack probably weighed 75 pounds hey, too. Hey, listen, listen. There, there was a lot more. That was it was a little sliver of straight uh, uh, through the middle yeah, of the I, bedding. I, yeah, I blew deer out too because I heard him. I heard him crossing the creek way out in front of me coming oh up that ridge. Gosh. Yeah, it, it was stupid. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, I, yeah, that was that was dumb. But uh, anyways, what do we have for our winner, Scotty? <laughs> <laughs> Participation trophy because I ain't no deer meat on that trip. You so. get an E for effort. Yeah, there's a lot of effort involved in ruining that hunt. Yeah, and torn clothing going through that briar thicket is terrible. Um, so, anyways, dude, uh, you 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 have no clue about briar thicket. So we we got them here with the devil's walking sticks. And oh all yeah. That, you know. Uh, yeah, it's not. Yeah. Hey, I'll tell I'll tell you what's the worst thing worst thing that's ever happened to me going through um uh, going through a, a I'm trying to was it a cutover I think it I'm trying to think was it a cutover it, I was going through on some kind of steep terrain he was I fell and I went to grab what I thought was a sapling and it was devil's <laughs> well, devil's walking stick oh and, and my god God bless me let's just let's just say it does I'll uh, wake you up in the morning it, oh man it was a morning hunt too yeah that slip fell and. Thought I was grabbing, you know, some kind of like sweet gum sapling. That was not what it was, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, old devil's walking stick tore me up. So, uh, but uh, anyway, so I want to get a little back towards this. So, really, it sounds like you know, especially at this point in the season, kind of just prospecting, working your way from the downwind side up into that that thicket. What there's got to be more to it than just that simple. I mean, when you're looking at say like you're talking like pine thicket here, or just whatever the thicket could be on a property. I mean, how much are you looking at? I mean, are you going to be working like a slight little drainage going into that thicket? Are you going to work any kind of habitat edge? What kind of things about it that depends thicket? On how the wind, it depends on how the wind plays me going in there. I mean, it's uh, may not be able to walk. The wind might be wrong to walk the drain if there is a drain. That's like I say, you got to, and, and I'm going to use it, you know, I'm going to use a certain amount of calling. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to use those antlers on the string because it's not just for rattling. I mean, I've learned how to take those antlers and and with the leaf litter on the ground, man, I can recreate the cadence of a deer doing that stiff-legged walk. You know how they do. And uh, so, yeah, I may use that. You know, if I hear a deer out there in the distance walking, I may do that to try to bring him to me, or I might actually tickle the antlers together. And uh, just anything you can do um, to get that buck to get up and come to you. I, you know, I try to I try to explain to people too that you know you would never go turkey hunting. <laughs> without your turkey call yet that's how 99 percent of people that hunt deer deer hunt they go get in a stand and they say to themselves man i hope a buck walks by me before dark you know and i can kill him well he can get up out of that bed and go in any different direction other than towards you you know why not give him a reason to come towards you if you were to go take a shotgun and sit in the middle of the woods during turkey season and just hope to gobble walk by you where you could kill him you wouldn't kill many turkeys because they're going to see you before you see them. You know what I'm saying? But if you got a turkey call and you get him to respond, then you know where he's coming from. So you can focus on that spot and see him before he sees you. And then you can dictate when or when not to move. You know what I'm saying? And it's kind of the same way with the bucks, with, with the antlers on the screen. If you just sit in a stand, he may not get up on his own 
until after dark to move. But if you make him think he's got some competition in his area, you might can make him get up out of so I killed a lot of my deer. Made him get up out of his bed and come to me, you know, because he ain't going to tolerate competition in his area no more than a gobbler is. That's why a gobbler decoy works so good instead of a hen decoy because he won't tolerate that competition at that time of year because he's territorial. Tim, to take it back just a, just a second, um, a minute ago when you were mentioning your access, you were talking about getting the wind right and going in there. Just as a kind of in-the-field kind of question, when you're out there and you're accessing, and I mean, I mean, pretty much anybody who's been bow hunting any amount of time or hunting at all, I mean, that, that wind direction shifts a lot. It'll swirl. It'll do this. It'll do that. Uh, when you're in the field out there hunting, how do you adapt to those kinds of changes? So you're walking in with the wind in your face and bam, that wind starts hitting you in the back of the neck. Uh, what, what's your next move after something like that happens? Well, that's, that's the beauty of having that climber. You, you have the ability to change directions, you know. Um, of course, common sense will tell you if you get to a spot and when you get there, you know, the wind is blowing dead into where you expect the deer to come from, then you need to you need to make a move. You're like, well, I need to go around this way a little ways and get up a tree. That way I got a better wind. I mean, it's just, it's playing the wind. I mean, that's, uh, I've learned just from hunting hogs, you know, you can do everything you want to do. You're never going to get scent proof to a deer. You're just not going to do it. Can't do it. It's impossible. Absolutely. Uh, how often are you hunting a a crosswind or, or just off wind? Are you always trying to have the wind straight in your face? No, I mean I, crosswinds are good. Uh, you just don't want you don't want the wind blowing dead into the spot that you're expecting the deer to come from. You know, or hogs either. Um, crosswinds. There's nothing wrong with a crosswind. Uh, but like I say, you just don't want it sitting there hitting you in the back of the neck and blowing directly into the spot you're expecting deer to come from uh, kind of a final question on that if you're in the in the tree stand let's say you've you've walked up you found the sign you kind of found the fit like maybe you're sitting a, a feed tree or something or some kind of hot food source and that and again that wind shifts are you getting down and changing trees at that point or uh what are you going to do no i'm i'm you know once once i get up there and settled in I'm, 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 I'm there you know um i may do one or two things if it's a pine um if it's a pine area um i always keep a spray bottle in my fanny pack that's got pure gum spirits of turpentine that's cut 50 50 with water so i can spray and actually make myself smell more like a pine tree kind of try to cut my human scent to the point it's not it doesn't spook the deer or i might even um i got a buddy of mine that makes a deer lure called voodoo and i might even spray myself down heavier with that if it's not a pine area if it's a hardwood area I may do that to try to cut down my human scent, or I may climb a little higher than I normally do to try to, you know, to get my scent level to where it, it's a, uh, and that's kind of a double-edged sword, you know. You so uh, in the evenings your scent tends to settle, you know, and in the in the mornings your scent tends to rise. Um, so the higher you get, basically, the further out your scent's gonna go before it settles, if that makes sense to you in the evenings. So, but there again, it's 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 a double-edged sword, you know. When the leaf litters off the trees, you pretty much gonna need to climb a little higher, and there again, get on the back side of the tree so you can have some cover. Um, but to answer your initial question, I try to, you know, I try to play the wind the best I can and slip into a spot. And if the wind changes, excuse me, if the wind changes on me, it just changes on me. You know, I don't, because by the time you do that, if you get down and move, you know, 
because it's but you're basically in there during prime time anyway and i don't want to i don't want to booger anything up anymore you know uh, and I be, knock on wood, I very seldom get smelled. I just very seldom do. I mean, you're more apt to get smelled in the summertime or in, in, in the early season when you just sweated up everything and you're up there in a T-shirt and a bug tamer. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to break a sweat going in there. Um, that, that deer I killed up in the afternoon of both season, it, or not, of gun season this year, I mean, it was warm that day. The skeeters were absolutely horrible. I mean, they were horrible. And uh, I couldn't stay there without that thermosail. So, Tim, I've got to ask you, uh, this is a, a question that actually was written in by a listener, and it's not specifically for you, but I think you're the guy to really ask this question for. Um, the, the, the gentleman's question is, you know, he hears all these guests that we have on the podcast talk about, you know, how they, you know, they get to these spots, you know, hunting thickets, all this kind of stuff, they're having success. And his question is, if you have a predetermined location in mind where like you're going to a spot for whatever reason, like say maybe the spot like where you shot your buck early this season, you knew that persimmetry and you kind of knew, you knew exactly where it was at and how you're going to come in there. When you have a predetermined spot in mind that you're going to get to on a morning hunt versus an evening hunt, at what point are you kind of slowing down when you're easing into that stop, spot to be quiet? And, and where I'm trying to get with this guy is, if you're covering a quite a bit of distance, say like you're having to go in, you know, three quarters of a mile to maybe even farther than that, where you, you know, you got some distance you got to cover. At what point are you going to slow it down on, if any, on a morning hunt compared to what you might do on an afternoon hunt? Well, it just, it, it, this is basically, you know, it's just like common sense, you know, being captain obvious here, the closer you get to where you think you're going to hunt, the more you slow it down, you know, in the black dark in the morning, um, and you still don't want to sound like Sasquatch, but you know, you, you can get away with it a little more noise and it's just, uh, I don't know what it is about it, but in, in, in the pre-dawn darkness, um, you seem to get away with a whole lot more than would you would be able to, if you were slipping in, say an hour and a half before dark in the afternoons, mainly because in the mornings, the leaf litter on the ground is going to be damp. You're not going to make as much noise as you would. Uh, in the afternoons after the sun's been up and dried everything out, it's where it sounds like you're walking on tater chips again. And uh, that's one reason there, again, I like to hunt in the afternoons more than I do in the mornings because, like we were talking about earlier, it's hard to get behind the deer in the mornings. In the afternoons, you can get in there close to them, um, and you can hear better because the leaf litter's drier, and the deer are going to make more noise walking in the leaves in the afternoons than they will in the mornings, you know? All right, Tim, man, you just opened up a conversation that I'm actually really excited to have. Um, if you look, if you think back to all the bucks that you've killed and you had to just roughly guess percentage wise, how many bucks do you think you've killed on morning hunts, say up until like 10, 11 o'clock in the morning oh, versus 80, how many? Do you, yeah, I know where you're going with that. Okay. 80% in the afternoon, 20% in the morning. Okay. You're, you're the man to talk to about this. Let's, all right. So let's hash this out. We're going to talk about Jacob for a hot second. So I have way less confidence on afternoon hunts than morning hunts, okay, when it comes to killing a buck. I've killed way more bucks, it seems like, on morning hunts than afternoon hunts. Um, and, and one, and actually, I was literally just talking to Andrew about this today, actually, before I was coming over here, um, is one reason I feel that's the case is I always feel like, for some reason, something about, like, trying to push the envelope and get close in the afternoons to, like, one of the edges of these thickets or something like that, where there's sign there, and I just feel like, 
maybe something with like the noise factor, potentially making a little bit too much noise getting set up in a spot or just something, I don't know, it's something about afternoons, afternoon sits. I always just, I don't have the confidence I'll do on a morning hunt. And I don't know really why that is. I don't know what's really the cause of it, but that's just kind of like something I've ran into, especially the last year or two is like, I feel way more confident on a morning hunt than I do on an afternoon hunt when it comes to trying to target a buck. Um, so maybe you can kind of help me out with that. I mean, we can kind of just talk about it. You know, you have so much success in afternoons. Why do you think that's the case? Like, why do you think you have so much success? It's, it's, well, it's, it's really this simple. I'm self-employed. So if I go hunting in the mornings, all I can do is look at my watch and think about what I got to have done that day. I can't enjoy my hunt. Okay. If I go in early and get my work done and then go hunting that afternoon, I don't have to worry about work till the next day. So I can enjoy my hunt a whole lot more. Okay, I'm not rushed. I can slip in there, and you know, it's just it, you, like I say, when you're going in the woods, there it goes back to the woodsmanship. You can't sound like Sasquatch when you go down through there. I mean, you got to you got to have a little bit of common sense about you about moving in the woods. You know, yelping like the turkey thing, scratching in the leaves. People can make fun of that if they want to, but it works. I, I you know, I know that for a fact, or I wouldn't use it. But yeah, that's uh, for me personally. I just uh, I enjoy the afternoon hunts better because I get more hunts in. Um, and that's how I explain to people too. You know, and if if you work for an employer, if if I had a say, I had a boss man, I had to answer to. I would ask him if he would do this for me. I say, look, I want to take a day off, but I don't want to take a full eight hour day. I want to take off two hours early for four days. Okay. If I take a whole day off, I get a morning and an afternoon hunt, and then I'm back to work. If I take two hours off early every day, I get four hunts in, and I'm going to be hunting in the afternoon during prime time, the last hour and a half to two hours before dark. So I've doubled my chances as far as being able to hunt because I'm in the woods twice as much. That makes sense to you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, One thing... I'm just, I'm just really curious on this afternoon hunts. I mean, just again, I'm coming from me looking at what I've done wrong to you having success, especially with, you know, even limited time. It's not like you're hunting, you know, eight hours a day, every day, you know, you're getting, a couple, you're, you're getting just a couple hours in at the end of the day when, when you decide to take off work and, and leave the shop. Um, so a, a couple of questions with that, you know, with you kind of hunting mobile, how does that play a factor for when you're going in? And I, I'm probably asking some of these questions and some people may think it's repetitive, but I, I really want to know. I know it's simple, but you're going on an afternoon hunt, especially if you're talking like right now, kind of, you know, where y'all are at, you know, it's, it's post rut getting to maybe that secondary rut time frame for us. It's just now getting good on an afternoon hunt. What kind of sign, what kind of things are you having to find in order to be like, Hey, it's worth my time setting up here when mass crop uh-huh. is out okay. of the question. Oh, if the mass crop is out of the question, I'm going to the thickets. I mean, I know that sounds redundant, but that's what we've been talking about. In your area, if if the rut was coming on, you know, if it was pre-rut, I'd be looking for paw marks and scrapes. I'd be looking for the buck sign. I'd be looking in the area he's hanging out. I'd be looking for family units of does and yearlings to where the bucks, that's where they're going to be. They're going to be seeking out those does and yearlings in the pre-rut. And that's where your rattle and your grunting can come in really handy because that's the best time to grunt and rattle is during the pre-rut. It really is, you know. If a buck's with a doe, you're not going to call him off that doe. I don't care what you do. You know, you're just not going to do it. He's If he's with that hot doe, uh, he's going he's gonna to stick with her, you know. Say I've got a 200-acre cutover 
and I'm trying to pinpoint where I want to go prospecting. I like that term. I'm just going to keep using the term prospecting instead of scouting my way to a spot. If I'm going to go in and prospecting on an afternoon hunt and say, you know, it's, you know, three hours before dark, four hours before dark, maybe I got a little bit of time in the woods like that. You know, where, of course, we're starting on the downwind side, but where would be a higher odd spot of really starting at if I was looking at an aerial map? And that's probably the question I should have asked you on an aerial map that then is, you know, worth looking at and keying in on, you know, whether you get talking drainages, old logging roads going through there, those kind of things that kind of put you in a, in a, in a certain spot to then find the trails and the tracks and the sign coming out of it. The simplest the simplest thing would to be to look for from an aerial map is a peach point or a bottleneck or a funnel. If you're looking from above, you know, what, what would make what would make the deer walk to this spot or what would pinch him down, whether it's, whether it's where a, a big old washout, you know, like if it's if it's hilly terrain and you got a big gully there, are they going around the top side of that gully where it peters out, you know? Um, is it where planted pines are, are meeting, you know, a timber change, I guess is the best way to say it. Is it a clear-cut meeting planted pines? Or is it clear-cut meeting hardwoods or a, uh, or a drainage or a creek? Uh, anywhere there's a timber change, that edge is always a good place to start. Tim, one of my last questions here, uh, I, I want to kind of end this on like a little story here and I'm going to kind of put you, put you on the spot. Do you have a specific buck where maybe we can talk about how you kind of use, you know, your, your thought process of kind of that creative access going in where other guys, especially on the property, aren't going to go because they're not going to, they can't either four wheelers to or drive. Do you have a specific buck maybe in mind that you killed where you kind of went in where most other guys just didn't want to go to, you're able to shoot the, you're able to kill the buck depending on the situation, able to get him out and maybe have the other members thinking like, Oh crap, I can't believe, you know, you were able to do that based off the situation at hand and, and, you know, doing things that most of the other guys just won't be doing. Yeah, absolutely. That buck I killed in 2018, <clears throat> that one with the real long brow tines, that deer was 142 inches gross, uh, 139 and seven net had nine inch brow tines on each side. Uh, this was, just to put it in, in layman's terms, it was a 15-minute truck ride to the property. It was another 15-minute four-wheeler ride, and then it was a 45-minute walk from my four-wheeler to the tree I climbed. I don't know, realize if you know how far you can walk in 45 minutes, you can go a long way in 45 minutes. Uh, a guy slipped up the tree that afternoon, and it got done. Just making a long story shorter, because I wrote a story about this deer for GON. I was basically where I wound up. I was in a privet thicket about 200 yards off the Oconee River Bank, and it got dust dark. I let my antlers down on my string, and I rattled one time, and I was sitting there. It was just super quiet, and I heard something coming, and it was making so much noise, I thought it was going to be a big boar hog, but when I saw it coming, I seen deer legs, and I said, that's a deer, and then I seen his rack, and I said, that's a buck. I had no idea he had brow tines that long. It was just, I was looking at his frame. You know, I knew he was 125. 130-inch gross eight points, what I thought he was. Well, anyway, I shot this deer. He went 30 yards and piled up. So now I'm looking at myself. I'm fixing to call my son and tell him what I, you know. In fact, when I called him the first time, I said, I think I shot 125, 130-inch eight point. And he said, where you at? I said, I'm on the southeast end of the hunting club. I said, I'm only 200 yards from the bank of the river. And uh, I said, if you want to come help me, I said, I'll meet you up at the gate. So I, I, I walk out, and I've hung a light in a tree, right? I keep lights in my fanny pack. So I hung a, a, a light in the tree over the deer where I could, you know, I could find it back in the dark real easy. 
I walked back the 45 minutes to my four-wheeler, drove out to the gate and met my son, drove back in there, parked the four-wheeler. We got halfway to the deer. Now, my son at that time, he was, he's 33 now, so he was 31, maybe 30 years old. It's 2018. <clears throat> we get halfway back here to where I shot the deer, and he said, dang, Dad, how far are you back here? I said, we're about halfway. He said, you're kidding me. I said, nope. I said, we got one or two choices. I said, we can drag this deer 200 yards to the riverbank, and I'll get Matt Ballard to bring his surface drive duck boat down the river, and we'll load it up and haul it out that way, or we're going to get it and put it on a pole, and we're going to tote it back to the foil. He said, you need to call Matt, and I laughed at him. I said, I've already called him. He's on his way. <laughs> I said, so time we get him to the riverbank, I said, he'll we'll probably be able to hear him coming, and so... That's how we got him out of there. We drug him to the riverbank and down a big high bluff of the river and loaded him up in my buddy's uh, surface drive duck boat and went back out, went to the boat landing and took him out that way. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's a perfect way to uh, kind of cap this episode off is, you know, your, your worry is not if you can get the deer out. Your worry is let's get the deer killed and we'll get them out one way or the other. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's the least of my worries is getting him out once he's dead. I, I mean, I got just got too many people. I mean, if I call them, I mean, some people have got to the point. If I call them like at dusk dark or a few minutes after dark, they're like, what you kill? <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> so, but yeah, that's no problem. You know, they're like, you know, if you want to find out who your friends are, not, not with just a deer hunt thing, but break down at two or three o'clock in the morning and call and see who comes to get you. Yeah, that's when you find out who your friends are. And I do the same thing for them. If somebody called me up, you know, and they say, man, I got a deer down, or I got one that we need to track, or I'm thinking about calling a dog, and I say, well, look, man, you just let me know. Tell me where you're at. I'll be on the way if you need me. And I would be, because I'd want them to do the same for me. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, I think, a big takeaway also, just to leave the listeners, is like, you know, if you're hunting real deep on public land, your private land, whatever, you know, don't worry about, oh, if I shoot one, I've got to get it out of here. That should be the least of your worry. Your, your, your only worry is getting this buck killed or getting this deer killed. Um, and yeah, th- and then exactly. fr- Absolutely. And then from there, we'll, we'll, you'll figure it out. You know, you'll go from there. It'll be, it'll be, you know, probably a sore night and a couple sore days after the fact you got to drag them out. But one way or the other, you can get them out of the woods. So don't worry about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, yeah. And it's a. That's like I say, it's the least of my worries. If I get him down, we'll get him out. That's not going to be an issue. Now, Tim, uh, I want you to plug, uh, you know, your taxidermy business real quick, along with uh, y'all's YouTube channel, you and your son's YouTube channel. I know y'all film a lot of the hunts and everything. Um, so if anybody's, you know, in your part of Georgia, they want to bring you a deer or anything else. I know I saw you that you're stopped taking waterfowl because of how many uh, birds got brought in last year. Uh, kind of. Well, we're only t- right now we're only taking deer and Europeans just for the you know, just for the sake of freezer space. Uh, we're just telling people, you know, just if you want to hold them for five or six months and call us back, uh, we should be in a situation that we've just been blessed with a lot of business. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I've, I'm been in business going on 34 years now, full time. And it's just, uh, we've been busier now, you know, with the pandemic last fall and everything, a lot of people weren't working. So they went hunting apparently and they killed a bunch of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we got job security, um, but I don't, you know, as far as plugging my business, that'd be good. But I mean, I'm, I, and we got all we can do now. <laughs> um, but if people do get a chance, I would like them to look up my son's uh, hunting 
uh, page. It's a uh, it's a uh, Genesis Archer. Just spelled just like the first book in the Bible. And uh, there's all kind of good hunting videos on there. Uh, you can look it up on YouTube, uh, Roku, and I think there's a couple others. But anyway, if they get bored and want to watch them, some good just straight up 100% pure fair chase hunting uh they can watch that because that's that self-filming stuff i've been there and done that it's tough all right man well uh, tim i'm gonna i'm gonna have to plug your first episode episode 188 uh we looked that up a minute ago to confirm that episode number but it's also going to be in the link in the show notes so if anybody wants to go back and listen to that first one which we went really in depth with calling on that one that was a really really excellent show and one of our most uh uh are one of our shows that's produced the most listener success stories, so I highly recommend that one. Uh, but Tim, man, we appreciate it so much. Uh, wish you the best of luck with the rest of your season, and uh, hopefully you can uh, put down some more critters. All right, sounds great. Well, y'all, good luck to y'all, and I hope y'all kill a big one. Thanks, man. All right, buddy. Good talk to y'all. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman, and thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we've went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.